Okay, so our first speaker is Dr. Alyssa Krill-Jackson. So um, Dr. Krill went to medical school at the University of Michigan, did her residency at Brigham and Women's, her fellowship at UM and New England Medical Center in Boston. She is the medical co-director of our breast oncology program and the director of genetic counseling program at Mount Sinai, and her topic is updates in breast cancer and information from the San Antonio Breast Conference. Dr. Krill. Uh, hi, um, I'm Elisa Krill Jackson, um, and what we're going to talk about today is how do I forward my slides? Do I have a? I need my clicker. Um, what we're going to talk about is um, advances in breast cancer over the last year and, and new updates that, that we should all know about. Um, I need to disclose that I, I get honoraria from uh, Eli Lilly and from Pfizer for speaking. Um, so, what we're going to talk about initially, gosh, I wish I had my. Uh, computer in front of me so I don't have to look up here. Um, we're going to talk about adjuvant therapy of, of breast cancer initially and, and the updates in, in adjuvant therapy. We're going to talk a little bit about chemo prevention, um, uh, local therapy uh, um, updates, um, updates in HER2 positive breast cancer, hormone receptor positive disease, and triple negative breast cancer. So this, you can see the breast cancer subtypes by age, and what I really want you to notice is that ERP or positive breast cancer is the most common type of breast cancer in all age groups. However, it's, it's much more prevalent in, in older populations, and the triple negative, which is of course our most problematic type, is largest in our youngest age groups. 23% of patients um, under the age of 40 who have breast cancer will have HER2 positive breast cancer. Um, I mean, it's triple negative breast cancer, I'm sorry. And HER2 positive breast cancer, again, is much more common in younger age groups. Now, we see more triple negative in younger age groups, of course, because there we have a predominance of, of genetic mutations. So BRCA mutations predispose to younger breast cancer, and they also predispose to triple negative breast cancer. Um, African Americans tend to have more triple negative breast cancer as well. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about chemo prevention for intraepithelial neoplasia. So intraepithelial neoplasia is um, a long word for um, what we've known as either ductal carcinoma in situ or um, atypical hyperplasia. So these are all a spectrum of intraepithelial neoplasia. And we know that they increase the risk for um, infiltrating, du infiltrating ductal carcinoma. So we have multiple agents that we can use for chemo prevention. We can use the aromatase inhibitors. We can use Avista in postmenopausal women. We can use tamoxifen. But those all are associated with a lot of side effects that people find unappealing. And we know with the aromatase inhibitors, they cause a lot of arthralgias, vaginal dryness, osteoporosis, um, avistas, again, hot flashes. And tamoxifen can increase the risk of uterine cancer and hot flashes. So a study was done actually looking at um, lower doses of tamoxifen to see if they'd be more tolerable but just as effective. Because the 20 milligram dose, we've been studying for years and years without actually any good data on do you really need 20 milligrams. And so in this trial, uh, they randomized low-dose tamoxifen. Now, this dose was 5 milligrams a day. Tamoxifen does not come as a 5-milligram pill. It does come as a 10-milligram pill um, available um, on the market now. And they took uh, women at higher risk for breast cancer who had intraepithelial neoplasia. They could have had 
um, atypical ductal hyperplasia, LCIS, or DCIS, and they randomized them to tamoxifen 5 milligrams a day or placebo. There were 500 subjects enrolled. Now, this is a much smaller trial than, than the um, um, uh, P1 prevention trial, which randomized like 6,000 women, but again, it's, it's a decent-sized trial, and they treated them only for three years, not for five years. And what you can see here is a marked decrease in breast cancer events. This is the line of the women who got tamoxifen, and this is um, disease-free um, in the women who, who didn't get tamoxifen um, in the five milligram group. There was a 50% reduction in breast cancer events in women who got the five milligrams a day of tamoxifen, which is, sorry, technical difficulties. So there was um, a, quite a reduction, um, actually more, more like a 75% reduction for three years of tamoxifen in women who got the five milligram a day dose. Um, and that's very, very similar to what we saw in the, the, the P1 trial, which uh, was a 50% reduction in that 6,000 women on that trial. Um, adverse events were very, very minimal. And there was one endometrial cancer on the tamoxifen arm, and that was it. There was one DVT on each arm. Um, and, and no increase in deaths at all. Um, so this appears to be a good alternative to 20 milligrams of tamoxifen for prevention. And I think that uh, women are just much more accepting of it. I mean, I've, I've prescribed it to several women already since this data came out at San Antonio in December, and women were just thrilled that they could take a lower dose of tamoxifen. Um, again, in the study, it showed much less hot flashes, which is one of people's biggest complaints with tamoxifen. So I think it's a really good alternative for women with DCIS or with um, atypical ductal hyperplasia or just a high risk for breast cancer looking for an option that has, um, that's associated with less side effects to reduce their risk. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about chemotherapy uh, de-escalation. So as you know, our standard of care for patients with um, large HER2-positive cancers is Taxotere, Carboplatin, Herceptin, and Pergetta for six cycles, which is fairly toxic, certainly causes hair loss. For stage one cancers, we can also give 12 weeks of Taxol Herceptin, but again, causes hair loss chemotherapy. So um, the Christine trial was done, which compared the chemo regimen with with Hercept, uh, trastuzumab and pertuzumab to a regimen with TDM1. I think we're all familiar with TDM1. It's a Herceptin conjugated with metancine chemo, so it's really um, um, like a Trojan horse. It brings the chemo into the cell through the Herceptin. Uh, but it's, it's really a, a non-chemo, doesn't cause chemo side effects, doesn't cause hair loss, doesn't cause a lot of nausea, combined with pertuzumab. And so this was looking for a non-chemotherapy regimen um, that we could use um, as in the neoadjuvant setting for breast cancer. Um, and what they found was that it was actually not quite as good as the chemo regimen, but was much less toxic. So, you know, even though this is not going to be a superior regimen, it is an alternative, perhaps, for patients who refuse a chemotherapy option or maybe are not candidates for a chemotherapy option. Maybe somebody with a severe peripheral neuropathy already who you don't want to give a taxane to. Now, approval, you know, getting an insurance to pay for it is, is going to be somewhat diff difficult, but this is looking like a, a non-chemo 
option, maybe not as good, but a non-chemo option for patients. Um, now, the big news at, at San Antonio this year um, was this trial. So this is the Catherine trial, which we participated in. And the um, Catherine trial used TDM1, trastuzumab imtansine, um, in patients who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy who did not have a pathologic complete response. So these patients got AC, Taxol, Herceptin, or TCH, or even TCHP. They had their surgery. They still had some residual disease in their breast. And it could be microscopic residual disease. They could have had one millimeter of residual disease. We know that patients who have a pathologic complete response have a very, very good prognosis, more than a 90% chance that they will not have a disease recurrence. But um, patients who have residual disease, and depending on the amount of residual disease, um, they have a worse prognosis. So what this trial did is it randomized women to either finish their year of Herceptin or after surgery to be switched to TDM1, to this monoclonal antibody conjugated with the chemo. Um, that does not cause hair loss, but can cause some side effects like thrombocytopenia, elevated liver functions, rarely a little bit of, of fever or nausea. And so, so it randomized them in a one-to-one -one fashion to TDM1 for 14 cycles or to continue their trastuzumab for 14 cycles. And the endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. And what you can see here, what I want you to look at is, is this is the disease-free survival on TDM1, and this is the disease-free survival on trastuzumab. There's a big difference there. So just by switching, T, um, trastuzumab to TDM1, we got a lot more um, patients salvaged not having a recurrence of their breast cancer. Um, and what you should look here is it worked both in patients who were estrogen receptor negative, estrogen receptor positive, patients who got pertuzumab also benefited as opposed to those that just got trastuzumab. It benefited node negative patients as well as node positive patients all age subgroups, um, all races, and all size of tumors. So if you look here at tumors that were T1A, less than five millimeters, they, they had almost the same benefit in terms of decreased recurrence risk. So this is, this is the big news, and we're, right now we're waiting for an approval. Um, I don't see any issues since this drug is already an approved drug that we use for metastatic disease. So we're waiting for an approval from the FDA, but um, insurers at this point are already agreeing to cover this for, for patients who don't have a pathologic complete response. Um, now, um, I want to look at the Extinet study. This is an older study that we'd been using in patients who'd finished a whole year of trastuzumab, but we felt were higher risk, um, randomizing them to a whole nother year of neratinib or placebo. And if you're familiar with neratinib, it's an oral HER2 inhibitor. causes a lot of diarrhea. It's very difficult. It makes the treatment go from one year to two years. And it did decrease the recurrence risk, 90% to 87.7% in the total population of patients. But if you compare that to the study before, look at the big difference there. So it looks like TDM1 is, is a much more effective way to salvage patients who don't have a pathologic complete response to um, uh, chemo. Yes? Were the study size, the sample, the same on both? 
Uh, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with exactly how many patients were on the study. The neratinib seemed to only really benefit patients with ER positive disease. It didn't have a great benefit on ER negative disease. Um, so so there's, there's some issues. So, you know, unfortunately, I, for, for, um, for neratinib, I think this is not going to be where they pick up a lot of business in the future, although we do expect it to be approved for metastatic disease, for which it's, it's quite useful, and um, it, it does get into the brain. Um, the safety of, this is the safety of TDM1, very safe. If you're used to giving this drug, women tolerate it generally very, very well. So, so what's the meaning of this study? Um, should we recommend TDM1 for patients who got pertuzumab as their neoadjuvant therapy and did not have a pathologic complete response? I'd say the answer to that is definitely yes. It's, it shows benefit in all subgroups of patients. Should we continue pertuzumab with it? No, there's no data for continuing pertuzumab. And what about patients with low volume disease? I think e even in low volume disease, we see a marked increase in metastatic disease in patients who don't have a pathologic complete response. So even if somebody has a few millimeters of residual disease, I think it is worth switching them. And what about neratinib? I think neratinib is extended adjuvant therapy, um, and people at San Antonio felt that this was an inferior option to um, switching to TDM1. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Taylor-X study. So um, as you know, um, we, the Taylor-X study was reported this year. So Taylor-X study looked at using an Oncotype DX assay to evaluate whether patients um, who had an ER-positive breast cancer could forego chemotherapy or not. And it's always had this intermediate risk zone where we don't know the benefit of chemo or not. So what this study did is it randomized patients with a score of um, 11 to 25. 25 was kind of the midpoint in the assay to chemo or no chemo. Every patient over 25 got chemotherapy. And um, what they found was that, um, that there was really no benefit for there it goes back. There was no benefit for chemotherapy in patients with a score of 11 to 25. So I think we've answered the question of what to do with the low intermediate group is they don't really need chemotherapy. The only group of patients that did benefit somewhat were patients who were premenopausal. So under the age of 50 with a score between 18 and 25, they did benefit from chemotherapy. But why did they benefit? I think that is, is the question. Um, so going back, I want, I, I want to look back at an older study, the study, the text and the soft studies. So as you know, that we know from the text and the soft study that putting young women who have, who, whose menses have come back or whose estrogen level has risen after adjuvant chemotherapy, putting them into menopause and giving them hormonal therapy does increase their disease-free survival versus just using tamoxifen alone. And this was the result we knew from the text in the soft trials. So if you look at the benefit on, of putting somebody in uh, menopause on the text in the soft trial, you can see there's a several percent benefit. 5% uh, benefit um, of giving exemestane plus ovarian suppression versus tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression, and even more by uh, tamoxifen without ovarian suppression. So 
the thought is that the benefit we see for Taylor X in patients with a score between 18 and 25 who got chemotherapy may just be due to the fact that we put them in menopause with chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the trial actually didn't check menopausal status. So we're still left with one subgroup of patients under the age of 50 between the ages of 18, between the score of 18 and 25, whether, or 20 and 25, whether they are going to benefit from chemotherapy as their adjuvant therapy. In my mind, if they don't have a higher risk, I think personally that the cancer is the cancer. And if there's a difference in how patients respond, it is because of the, the body that the cancer lives in. And, um, and so why would the same cancer with the same genomic changes act differently in a woman over 50 versus a woman younger than 50? It's because that woman younger than 50 is making hormones. Um, so in my practice, I, I will offer chemotherapy, but I will also tell patients that it's my belief that, that ovarian suppression may achieve the same result in those patients with that intermediate subgroup of, of oncotype. Um, so ASCO, current ASCO guidelines for adjuvant ovarian suppression are women with stage two or three breast cancers who would uh, be advised to receive chemotherapy. Um, they should also get ovarian suppression in addition to endocrine therapy. And, you know, we, we can do this either by removing their ovaries or a more palatable option for some patients is to go on something like um, a GnRH analog, um, which they get either every month or every three months along with their endocrine therapy. Um, some, the very youngest women, we may have trouble keeping them in menopause that way, and then sometimes we'll have to re recommend taking out their ovaries. Of course, this does increase side effects for these patients. Um, patients who don't warrant chemotherapy with stage one breast cancer should probably not receive ovarian functional suppression um, unless they're in that group of 20 to 25 on Oncotype, where you want to improve their prognosis. They don't really need chemo, but you know that ovarian functional suppression may improve their prognosis. Um, and again, we really have to watch. So when these patients come back, you've got a 35-year-old, a 40-year-old who didn't receive, who may have received chemo, but their periods came back, and you're giving them a GnRH analog. I like checking their estradiol levels. I've found, unfortunately, many times that patients' estradiol levels go up on a GnRH analog because we just can't suppress these young, young women. All right. Um, I'm going to go through this a sec. Um, okay. One of the other questions that we have is extended adjuvant therapy. And so I, I just want to briefly review what we know about extended adjuvant therapy. I find one of the hardest um, discussions I have with patients is how long should they take their hormonal therapy. Um, you know, the, the initial recommendations have always been five years of tamoxifen, five years of an aromatase inhibitor. But we know, unfortunately, that breast cancer, only half of our recurrences occur in the first five years. Half of our recurrences recur after age, after uh, five years after diagnosis. Up to 15, 20 years, we're seeing some recurrences. Um, of course, the number of recurrences goes down with time, but still, we see many, many recurrences late. 
Um, so the question is, do patients benefit from taking longer adjuvant hormonal therapy? We know that 10 years, at this point we know from the Adam and Atlas trials that 10 years of tamoxifen improves prognosis over, 10 year, over five years of tamoxifen. We know that five years of an aromatase inhibitor improves prognosis over five years, uh, five years of an aromatase inhibitor after five years of tamoxifen improves prognosis as well, although a lot of the benefit is actually new breast cancers on the other side, contralateral disease, not necessarily metastatic disease. An open question is still, does 10 years of an aromatase inhibitor, is that better than five years? We don't know that question uh, at this point. Trials have been conflicting. So I think what we need to do is we need to really look at the risk, at uh, patients' risk. If they have multiple nodes positive, they may benefit from continuing. There's also some genomic assays that we can use that will tell us whether um, somebody's at higher risk for a late recurrence. So sometimes at five years, I will send off another genomic assay of somebody's original tumor from five years before to see if they're at higher risk for late recurrence and may benefit from additional therapy. But as you can see here, there's only small amounts of benefit for continuing um, for continuing uh, 10 years of an aromatase inhibitor or 10 years of hormonal therapy. Um, now, we did get um, one very positive trial at San Antonio this year. This was a Japanese trial called the ARIS trial, which did um, randomize patients after five years of an aromatase inhibitor to receive five more years of an aromatase inhibitor. Um, and this was actually a positive trial. So um, what they found was that um, a marked improvement, 90, 84% versus 92%. Uh, so 92% of patients were disease-free who continued 10 years of an aromatase inhibitor versus stopping at five years. Um, and this, but this is distant disease-free survival. So this is disease-free survival. It also includes contralateral breast cancers, new breast cancers. This is metastatic disease. And there was a 3% benefit, and it was statistically significant. Um, so I think it, it behooves a conversation with patients. There are many of my patients who won't want to stop. And there's many who are dying to get off their pills. Um, and I think we need to discuss with them these results. Somebody with positive nodes, this 3% benefit may be larger. Somebody with negative nodes, it may be smaller. Um, there were a, a good majority, 40% uh, of the patients on this trial had positive nodes. So there is a benefit. It's a small benefit. And we need to discuss it with our patients. This is the ARIS trial by nodal status, um, um, or this is all trials by nodal status. And if you look, one to three positive nodes does see about a 4% benefit in continuing hormonal therapy. Four or more nodes, there's a 7% benefit. But there's only about a 1% benefit in node negative disease. So we really have to look at the stage that our patients presented with. Again, when we give them longer treatment, we have more bone loss, more arthralgias, more fatigue, more menopausal symptoms, more cardiovascular disease. So I think we have to be very judicious in our treatment. You know, we're trying to get the best treatment for our patients with the least amount of side effects, and if we can minimize therapy, that's what we would like to do. All right, let's move on from 
ER positive disease to triple negative disease. So as you know, triple negative disease, estrogen negative, progesterone receptor negative, HER2 negative. Why do we call it triple negative? Because we don't know what it's positive for at this point. We don't have a hook to treat it with. Like we do HER2 positive disease, we can give an anti-HER2 antibody. Um, estrogen positive disease, we can treat with anti-estrogens. At this point, we don't have an approved therapy for uh, triple negative disease that tells us that it is positive for something that we can uh, treat for. Um, so what we're going to look at is a trial looking at immune therapy. So we know that many triple negative tumors are infiltrated with lymphocytes and they may respond to immune therapy. Unlike in other malignancies that I'm sure you're used to treating where immune therapy is great and it works for melanoma and it works for lung cancer and it works for kidney cancer, we haven't really found a great role until now in it for breast cancer. So this was a German trial in triple negative early stage breast cancer looking at dervalimab. Um, and these patients got dervalimab and abraxane, uh, a nab paclitaxel, before uh, surgery. Um, and what they found was there was an increase in um, a pathologic complete response in the patients who got dervalimab. Um, there are a lot of trials ongoing right now looking to see um, if immune therapy will cure more women with early stage breast cancer. So there's neoadjuvant trials going on to see if you get an increased pathologic complete response. There's currently a large intergroup trial going on, which looks at women with triple negative breast cancer who got chemotherapy, but did not have a pathologic complete response, kind of like the Catherine trial we talked about earlier with HER2 positive disease. They're looking at giving an immune therapy after their chemotherapy after their surgery if they didn't have a pathologic complete response and seeing if it cures more women. So I think there's more to come um, on immune therapy and breast cancer. Um, platinum agents. I will routinely use a platinum agent with neoadjuvant chemotherapy in somebody with a very high risk triple negative breast cancer positive nodes, but we don't have great data for that. Um, we have trials that range all the way from a 42% uh, benefit um, to a 30% benefit in pathologic complete response, but we don't know that that translates yet into better survival for these patients. So we're waiting trials that should be coming out soon. There's still trials ongoing to see if there's a benefit for platinums. So at this point, it's, um, you know, every physician has their own uh, way of using platinums in triple negative breast cancer. Um, going to move on. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to move on to a couple things. Um, and when we talk a lot about pathologic complete response, this is what um, I want you to understand. So the blue line here is the prognosis of women who have had pathologic complete response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Not just HER2 positive, not just estrogen negative, but and the yellow line is women who did not have pathologic complete response. What that means is they've had their chemotherapy before surgery. You do your surgery, there's still tumor in the breast. Look at the big difference. So most of our trials now are really going to be looking in a neoadjuvant setting, 
meaning giving chemotherapy before surgery, looking for a pathologic complete response rate, because we know that it translates into overall survival uh, advantage in patients who have an increased pathologic complete response rate. And the FDA is starting to approve drugs based on pathologic complete response rate. That's how uh, pertuzumab was approved initially in, um, in, for neoadjuvant therapy of breast cancer. You know, when you do a clinical trial looking at adjuvant therapy, in, in a, you have to wait five, 10 years to see how many women have relapsed to get results. For this, you have to wait six months to know after they finish their chemotherapy how they did. So this is, this is the way moving forward in terms of getting drugs approved and finding out what drugs work best in breast cancer. Some of these trials aren't even following patients to see how they relapse, although I think we need to do that to, to make sure that, that what we find out from neoadjuvant chemotherapy really translates into better prognosis for our patients. Um, all right, so in conclusion, before I move to metastatic disease and localized disease, we want to tailor therapy using the neoadjuvant model uh, like we did um, and uh, replace traditional systemic therapy with targeted treatments if we can. Um, we want to de-escalate our neoadjuvant chemotherapy if we can, um, and we want to escalate our adjuvant therapy in patients who have not had a complete response to their neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Okay, the one other thing I want to talk to you about, and this is why we, we need our navigators. Um, we know that delaying care matters to patients. So in a patient who presents with a breast cancer, if you um, delay surgery. So if the time to surgery in the blue line is less than 30 days, you have this prognosis. But if you look here at these last two, waiting greater than three months for surgery, those patients have a worse prognosis. So we really need to get these patients in and through. And I, I know you probably all have the same frustrations I do with insurance companies that take long times to approve things and it delays our patients. I think we really need to advocate for our patients and get them in uh, much more quickly. In, in triple negative breast cancer patients, if we delay more than 90 days from surgery to chemotherapy, look at how worse their prognosis is. Okay, it's a problem. It's a problem when women get reconstructions and they may have wound healing issues and they're delayed and they're delayed and they're delayed. I think, you know, we need to educate our surgeons um, about this. We need to start chemo regardless if we can. If there's a wound healing issue and it doesn't look like we're going to save an implant, then we need to get rid of that implant if it's a high-risk patient so that they can get their chemotherapy. It's also another reason to consider chemotherapy before surgery because they've got it in when they're healthy, when they don't have wounds that heal, need to heal, and plus then we can determine whether they're responding to the chemotherapy and whether there's something we can do after surgery to improve their prognosis. Um, one more thing I want to mention, this was a really nice trial at San Antonio this year um, about hot flashes. So 
Um, you know, I do breast cancer all day long. I hear a lot about hot flashes all day long. And of course, in a breast cancer patient, we really don't want to give them estrogen. We know that estrogen is associated with an increased um, an increase in, in death from breast cancer. So what do we do? In the past, we've given them things like, um, like antidepressants, um, venlafaxine, citalopram, and those work pretty well, and they help the moodiness of menopause too. Um, but, you know, they still have hot flashes, so we have room to maneuver to, to improve things. So, so this trial was done using oxybutynin. Do you guys know what oxybutynin is? So oxybutynin is, is a drug for uh, bladder spasms and, and incontinence. And so it gave very, oops, I hit the wrong button. It gave very low doses, 2.5 milligrams BID or 5 milligrams BID of oxybutynin to these patients with hot flashes. And what it showed was a marked decrease in hot flashes with these drugs. Now, a lot of patients don't want to take venlafaxine or citalopram because it's an antidepressant, and they don't want an antidepressant. I don't need an antidepressant. I don't believe in antidepressants. Don't give me an antidepressant. This is a non-antidepressant way to improve hot flashes. And if you actually compare it to previous trials, this is with placebo, the number of hot flashes per day. Now, this is cross-trial comparison. These weren't compared head-to-head, -head, but just look at the difference. So this is what um, venlafaxine does. It decreases hot flashes by 40%. Oxybutynin decreases them by 60% in that trial. Small trial, but it is another agent that we can use for these women. Um, and I've started using it. I haven't gotten much feedback yet, but I think it's great to have another option, and I think it's something uh, we can suggest to our patients. I know, you know, a lot of times the patients don't talk to the doctors about this all the time. I mean, I, I ask about menopausal symptoms, but, you know, maybe in a busy, vi busy visit, um, people don't really have time to talk to their doctors about it. So they'll talk to the nurses, or they'll talk to the navigators, or they'll talk to the uh, PAs and NPs. So if you hear this, this is something that you can suggest for these patients. All right. So that's curable breast cancer. I'm going to move on to metastatic breast cancer. Um, I guess we'll just do questions at the end. Um, so we're going to talk about metastatic breast cancer. And um, metastatic breast cancer has had modest improvements in, in the last 50 years. Um, it's, it's a very difficult um, uh, thing to treat. We have great drugs for it. We can often extend survival. But in our, our worst breast cancers, the triple negative breast cancers, we, we really haven't made great progress um, in terms of uh, time patients are alive with metastatic breast cancer. So what are our goals of therapy? Um, our goals of therapy are rarely cure. Rarely cure. I will tell you that in patients, some select patients with HER2 positive breast cancer, I've seen patients not relapse. I have patients out as many as 14 years now who have never relapsed from their first line of HER2 positive therapy for metastatic breast cancer, but they're the exception, not the rule. Um, so, so more realistically, our goals are to prolong progression-free survival and overall survival to make their quality of life good and control their symptoms with the least amount of toxicity. Um, so what we're going to talk about is what treatment options are available for different subtypes of metastatic breast cancer and what's new in that. Um, again, a review of breast cancer subtypes. ER positive accounts for 65 to 70% of disease. 
HER2 positive, 15 to 20 percent, and triple negative, the remainder. Um, so this is a clinical pathway for estrogen receptor, a former clinical pathway for estrogen receptor positive um, uh, cancers. We used to, for adjuvant therapy, they'd either get tamoxifen and AI, um, and then for first-line metastatic disease, they would get um, a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor like anastrozole or letrozole. Um, then they would go on to fulvestrant and third-line therapy, um, exemestane and everolimus perhaps for, for um, ER-positive breast cancer. Um, so that, that's generally the clinical pathway that we had followed in the past uh, before recent approvals for estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And then came the CDK4-6 inhibitors. So the CDK4-6 inhibitor like palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemaciclib, they have, sh they have markedly improved the prognosis. So when given as first or second line with hormonal therapy, they've doubled the progression-free survival of, of patients. Um, so let's look at that, for instance, in the Mona Lisa trial, the Mona Lisa 3 trial, which looked at patients with estrogen receptor positive, advanced breast cancer, who had um, uh, one or fewer lines of therapy for metastatic disease. They were given fulvestrin plus placebo or uh, fulvestrin plus ribociclib. And what you see here is the progression-free survival, so the amount of time they lived before the cancer progressed. You can see in the blue line the women who got both drugs had a marked improvement in their progression-free survival. Um, and again, in the Paloma 3 study, which looked at palbociclib plus fulvestrant, again, you saw a marked improvement in progression-free survival. Um, so um, in this group of patients, um, they had hormone receptor positive, um, HER2-negative advanced breast cancer. They were randomized one-to-one, -one, this is the Mona, Le uh, Mona Lisa trial, to ribociclib versus placebo. Again, doubling of the progression-free survival. With uh, endocrine therapy alone, a 13-month progression-free survival, um, 24 months when you add the, um, the, um, the CDK4-6 inhibitor with it. So if you look, about all of these patients benefit, about double their progression-free survival. And all clinical subsets can benefit from this. Um, Progesterone-negative disease, lobular disease, bone-only disease, de novo metastatic disease, uh, patients with a longer disease-free interval, and it's consistent across the subtypes. What we don't know is whether it um, improves overall survival. But a trial was presented this year at, um, at, at San Antonio, which did show a non-statistically significant but a numerical benefit in overall survival. So it does appear that we are benefiting our patients in terms of living longer if we add one of these CDK4-6 inhibitors to their first or second line metastatic hormonal treatments. Okay. Now, what else is new um, in estrogen receptor positive disease? So there are um, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors that are being developed right now. Uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors um, um, inhibit the PI3 kinase, which is a growth factor, uh, an internal growth factor in these breast cancer cells. Now, some some cells, when we send them off for genomic testing, will find that they, they have a PI3 kinase mutation. 
Um, so if there are particular breast cancers, we want to see if patients who have a PI3 kinase mutation in their breast cancer may benefit more from these drugs. So there was a trial called the Sandpiper trial, which looked at um, um, uh, tocilizumab um, with fulvestrant versus fulvestrant alone. And what you find is when it was added, there was about a two-month progression-free survival benefit. Not what we saw with the CDK4-6 inhibitors, where you're seeing a 12, 14-month progression-free survival. But trying to get a more specific trial in the right patient. So that's what oncology is about now, trying to find the targeted drug and find the right patient for their targeted drug. So when you pick out patients that have a PIK, PIK3 uh, kinase mutation when you send it off for something like foundation or garden testing, um, and then, then you give them um, a, a PI3 kinase inhibitor versus not, versus the non-mutant cohort, what are we going to find? What we're going to find is that in the PI3K mutant cohort, we have a marked improvement in progression-free survival. So six months to 11 months five-month progression-free survival benefit, almost a doubling of the progression-free survival in this population, versus that two-month when we saw with unselected patients. And there was not a significant benefit in the patients who did not have uh, the mutation. Um, again, all drugs are associated with some side effects. This one, rash and hyperglycemia were the biggest side effect and some diarrhea. So the addition of a PI3 kinase drug to fulvestrant significantly prolonged progression-free survival in that selected population. So, you know, in many malignancies, we've been sending off a lot of genomic tests um, to um, different uh, genomic tests to see if they have mutations, and we find mutations, and we can treat them. It hasn't been a... Um, it hasn't been that helpful in breast cancer. But when we get the approval of these drugs, like a PI3 kinase inhibitor, then we're going to know that we need to send off these tumors to see if the patient's tumor does have a PI3 kinase mutation. So we're getting into a more molecular area for breast cancer now. So now what's the clinical pathway for estrogen receptor positive disease? So endocrine therapy plus a CDK inhibitor or endocrine alone, and if they have endocrine alone, then we want to add a CDK inhibitor for the second line therapy. Or we could add a PI3 kinase inhibitor when they get approved if they have a PI3 kinase in, um, mutation. Or we could do endocrine therapy plus an mTOR inhibitor. So in patients, mTOR inhibitors may benefit patients um, who have a PI3 kinase um, mutation right now. So I'll tend to give an mTOR inhibitor second line in those patients, and you can combine it with either fulvestrant or an aromatase inhibitor like exemestane. Um, for indolent disease, we may want to just do the endocrine therapy initially alone. And once they progress through that, then we have to think about chemotherapy, or we can think about a bemaciclib, another CDK4-6 inhibitor, if they haven't been exposed to that in the past. Um, which works as a single agent. So in patients maybe who have been on long lines of hormonal therapy and then chemo, but they've never seen a CDK4-6 inhibitor, we can add this to their regimen. And then if they have a PARP inhibitor, we can give them, I'm, I'm sorry, if they have a BRCA mutation, we can consider a PARP inhibitor. All right, um, so let's move on to HER2-positive disease. Um, as you know, we've had multiple, multiple drug approvals for HER2-positive disease. Um, it is clearly 
the, one of the easier subtypes we have to treat now that we have so many targeted agents for it. Um, but we're still looking for more. Um, we currently have neratinib in clinical trials for, um, for metastatic disease. It has particular affinity for brain metastases, which is great. We have tucatinib, which the trials are just concluding on, and maybe we'll see an approval in the next year of tucatinib, which is also an, um, an oral um, HER2, uh, anti-HER2 agent. It does penetrate the brain as well. Um, these drugs are a little farther from approval. Um, margituximab is a new antibody, and the trials just announced that it was positive, um, meaning that the trial compared this to trastuzumab in patients who had later line um, HER2-positive disease who had already been exposed to um, Herceptin, uh, Pertuzumab, um, and TDM1. They randomized them to get chemo with margituximab or chemo with uh, trastuzumab, and margituximab was better. We still haven't seen that data, but the company did announce that it's a positive trial. So we may have a new uh, antibody option in the near future for our patients. So again, this is the tucatinib, which um, does show um, improved um, prognosis in patients versus um, uh, with brain metastases with capecitabine and trastuzumab. Um, and then this new drug is really exciting, trastuzumab deruxtecan. So trastuzumab deruxtecan is, um, is like TDM1. It's an antibody drug conjugate, meaning that we've got a a trastuzumab arm and a chemo is attached to it, and the trastuzumab gets that chemo into the cell. But this appears to um, work on cells around it. It also seems to work for patients who have HER2 1 plus and 2 plus disease. So studies are ongoing with this drug, and we hope to see it come to the clinic um, in the next few years. Just looking at this, so in HER2 positive cohort, this is a, a, um, a, a waterfall plot. And what you can see here is only this small subgroup of patients, you know, up to 10% didn't respond to this. 90% of patients had some sort of shrinkage of their tumor to the trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um, and in this HER2 low group, this is the HER2 1 or 2 plus. So these are patients that we don't consider HER2 positive. Look at. 90% had some sort of improvement in prognosis. It appears to not require that much HER2 on the, on the cell surface to actually work. So, uh, you know, again, I think we're getting more exciting. A lot of our triple negative patients have one or two plus HER2. Maybe they could benefit from this in the future. Um, but of course, what we're all interested in is, is immune therapy, um, like every other uh, tumor type, you know, uh, as a breast cancer doctor, I feel left out of the immune therapy party. Um, so, so what we want is we want to try to find a way to use immune therapy. And um, so this, this trial looked at venerelbine plus trastuzumab uh, plus avelumab, um, and it's, it's still ongoing. Um, so we're trying to find a role for it. Um, I'm going to skip through these quickly because we're getting low on time here. And I want to move on to triple negative disease because we've ha really had very little for triple negative disease up till now. But we've, we've actually gotten quite a few new things and are expecting a bunch of new ones this year. 
So I want to quickly discuss that before we, um, before we end. So again, immune checkpoint inhibition, um, uh, PD, anti-PDL1 agents, we've been left out of the party, but now we have this. So the Impassion um, uh, 130 study that we participated in randomized patients with first-line metastatic breast cancer, so they'd never been treated, first-line metastatic triple negative, they'd never been treated with any chemotherapy. It randomized them to NAB paclitaxel, because you don't need to use steroids with it, which would be an immune suppressant, plus, um, plus PDL1, um, atezolizumab, or placebo. And what these patients and what we found was an improvement in progression-free survival in patients whose tumors were PDL1 positive. And they just had to be any PDL1 positive greater than 1%. So this drug was actually approved by the FDA last month. We have our first drug approval ever for triple negative breast cancer, which is, is really exciting for our patients. So what you need to do if you have a, new, a patient with new triple negative breast cancer is you need to get that tumor tested for PDL1. If that PDL1 is 1% or greater, these patients can have a significant improvement in their prognosis if they get atezolizumab with NAB paclitaxel as their first line chemotherapy. So that's really, really, really important to know for our patients. Now, they do not benefit if they're PDL1 negative, so we don't need to waste the time, the money, the toxicity on, on those patients. We know who has a chance of benefiting. Um, and if you look at overall survival, this even had an overall survival benefit, which is, which is really hard to come by in, in metastatic breast cancer uh, trials. Um, now, another drug um, which I'm, I'm personally very excited about is sasituzumab. Uh, sasituzumab, again, is an uh, antibody um, drug conjugate, again, one of these Trojan horse antibodies which gets the chemo right into the drug cell. Um, this is um, an antibody against trope 1, which is found on many, many different kinds of cancers and many different types of breast cancers, but this trial looked at it in triple negative breast cancer. And um, they had a very, very positive trial. So if you look here again at the waterfall plot, um, only about 20% you know, didn't have any benefit from it. Most of these triple negative patients had a benefit from this drug, and these were patients with later line disease. This isn't first line metastatic breast cancer. This is patients who have been through two or three um, chemotherapy regimens already. Now, this, this drug actually came to the FDA last month, and the FDA rejected it, but not based on efficacy. They, they would have accepted it based on efficacy. They rejected it, apparently, because of some manufacturing issues. So the company is working on those manufacturing issues, and hopefully they'll get them right, and hopefully the FDA will approve it, because I think we desperately, desperately need new drugs for our triple-negative patients. Um, one other thing I want to show you about this drug is, uh, this is called a swimmer's plot. This shows how long they responded. And what you can see is that some patients responded for almost, for more than three years to this drug. I mean, when have we seen anybody with triple negative breast cancer respond for three years to a chemotherapy? I haven't. Okay, so we still don't know how to best use immune therapy in triple negative breast cancer patients. Hopefully we will find out, hopefully we'll find out if it helps CNS disease in these patients. And hopefully by combining agents, maybe we can make these cold tumors that are PDL1 negative respond to immune therapy. 
So again, we have new therapies for, um, for these triple negative patients. Um, one thing I do want to talk about is PARP inhibitors for BRCA mutation patients. Um, so we know that, you know, a certain subgroup of patients with triple negative disease have uh, genetic mutations um, in BRCA1, BRCA2, or in something called RAD51. Um, these these um, mutations um, interrupt um, DNA repair with what's called homologous recombination. Um, so PARP inhibitors um, were meant to um, interrupt the other pathway for DNA repair. So if you don't have homologous recombination and you give a drug that takes away the other ability to repair DNA, we're hoping that we can kill cells because then they can't repair their, normal D, their abnormal DNA. So PARP inhibitors were designed for that. And PARP inhibitors have been approved in ovarian cancer for a long time, and they tend to work better in patients with ovarian cancer who have BRCA mutations because they have homologous recombination um, um, deficiencies. Um, so what we do know, we have gotten two approvals this year, um, in the past year, for PARP inhibitors for metastatic breast cancer. We've gotten um, um, olaparib through the Olympiad trial, and telozaparib was just approved in, I think, November last year for um, uh, metastatic breast cancer. What does this mean? This means, again, we need more genomic and genetic testing for these patients. We can't know who's going to qualify for this unless we test them. So the new recommendation is actually to test all metastatic breast cancer patients for genetic mutations. So, you know, when we send a genetic uh, testing on our new breast cancer patients, we use certain criteria. Do they have a family history? You know, do they have triple negative disease under the age of 60? Are they under the age of 50? And those are the patients that we generally send a genetic test on. Now, because we have have a drug, we have two drugs meant for patients with BRCA or perhaps RAD51 mutations, we need to test all of our metastatic breast cancer patients. So we can do genetic testing. You can also do it the other way around through genomic testing because, of course, a genetic test will show a mutation that's in every cell in the body, so it's going to be in the tumor. So you should find it in the tumor, too, if you do genomic testing. So again, we have multiple reasons now to test breast cancer patients for, for different things, for PDL1, for, um, for BRCA mutations. Um, and again, this, this is an impressive trial. So what it showed was they randomized patients to telezoparib in the Embraca trial versus drug uh, of the investigator's choice. So the patients in the green line got chemotherapy of the investigator's choice. The others got telezoparib. And what you see here is all subgroups benefited um, in, in terms of telezoparib was better for these patients with BRCA mutations and metastatic disease than chemotherapy was. All right, so I think I'm going to end there in, um, uh, for time reasons. Um, not much left except for, again, if we send off genomic testing, we can get our patients on trials like the MATCH trial, the TAPER trial, which look for um, um, new agents that might be benefit our patients. Um, and with that said, do we have any questions? Thank you.